0: This is Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. The word of God for the people of God. So we're continuing in our series in the book of Mark. Uh, We are going, admittedly, quite slowly through these first few chapters. And tonight we have what is uh, a difficult text. It seems like the last few that we've looked at together have presented some Some issues In the first few chapters, what is being presented is this question of who is Jesus? What is he doing? Um, We've seen Jesus as one who is teaching authoritatively, different from the scribes and Pharisees. We've seen Jesus as one who is doing miraculous healings. We've seen Jesus as one who is um, taking some liberties with the law. We've seen Jesus as one who is celebrating the new that is breaking into this world. We've seen Jesus as one who is announcing the kingdom is here, it's among you, it's with me. And we've seen over the last few weeks in particular certain groups of people that were struggling to figure out and to identify who Jesus actually is and how to make sense of his teaching and his miracles and all the things that are going on um, with Jesus himself. In this particular passage, we see what is called a Markin sandwich. That is a lovely BLT up there, because as with a sandwich, it's the, the meat that's in the middle that makes it important. But what Mark is doing throughout his gospel, he does this a handful of times, he'll begin to tell a story. And then without resolving that story, he'll tell a totally Different story with inside of it, and then he'll return back to the story that he began. So here we see the family of Jesus being introduced, and what's going on in this particular context is they hear about what's going on and they want to go get him because they believe that he's out of his mind. As they're traveling, then we see Jesus interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. Particularly to, and we get their, their input on the power that Jesus has and where it originates from. After that, we, we return back to the family. So we see this Markin sandwich, which actually is what scholars call it. And it always makes me smile when I'm reading these really dull commentaries. And they wedge into it the Markin sandwich. It just seems... Silly to me, but that's, that's how they talk, and this is what the structure is that we're looking at in the story today. This particular story, how it's told in Mark is different than how it's told in Matthew and Luke. The arrangement of what's going on is different. In Matthew chapter 12, it begins, "...then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All of the people were astonished and began to question, could this be the son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it is only by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. So we see the same story that's happening here, yet in Matthew and as we'll see in Luke, it's introduced by Jesus actually casting out demons, which seems to make sense because as Jesus is casting out these demons, it elicits the response from the, the religious leaders, how is he doing this? Under whose authority and by what power Is he casting out demons? Mark's story is a bit different. Matthew also provides us with one more tidbit here where Jesus responds. It says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is Jesus saying, look at the works, look at what I'm doing, look at the things that are happening and understand that the kingdom is invading earth. Everything that you've been waiting for is happening right now with me. And Jesus is affirming his identity in these stories. In Luke, it's similar. This is Luke 11. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, who are you? why are you doing this? How is this happening? Are you doing this through the power of demons and demonic forces? Is Satan the one who is providing you with this sort of power? So in Matthew and Luke, the frame of the story is very different than the story in Mark. Notably, in Matthew and Luke, there is no sandwich. It begins with this story of Jesus casting out demons which then launches into the questions that that evokes at the time from either the crowd or the religious leaders or whoever. It seems to make sense and it goes from one episode right into the other. Mark's story is different. I'm throwing all kinds of sandwiches at you tonight, I know that. Um, Kate and I tried to celebrate Mother's Day yesterday, which meant that we went to Annapolis to go suit shopping. There's a lot of folks that are getting married and in order for that to take place, at least part of it is, I need to look good. So we had to go suit shopping. which is not exactly how I would think of observing Mother's Day, but the best thing of this day, other than hanging out with Kate and Abe and like the drive and the talk and all that stuff, it was this place that we found in the Annapolis Mall. I forget what it's called, but it was like this Mediterranean fast food type of place in the middle of the food court, and we just rolled the dice and we said, you know what, let's get Mediterranean food, I'm really feeling like some tabbouleh salad and I just want to go check this out. So we were there and we got these beautiful pita pocket sandwiches with some spicy chicken, tzatziki sauce, corn, pickled onions, pickled carrots, rice. Is anybody here appreciating this or is it just me? Am I just in my own world here? The way that I would tell this story, not to Kate but to other people is, what did you do yesterday? I had the best lunch. We went to this place in the food court and I remember asking Kate, I was like, is this place really that good or is it just good because we're in a food court? I can't really tell, but it seemed like it was good and the way that I would reflect on this story is the food is central. I really appreciated Kate being there and Abe there, but that sandwich, to me, it just, man, it sealed the deal. And Mark, it seems like the way that he's telling the story is he's taking certain events and privileging them over other things the way that he's telling the story is he's stylizing it to make a point what he's doing is unique to mark and what he's doing in this particular set of uh, scripture is he's contrasting the disciples that we just saw a few weeks ago where jesus goes up to the mountain and and selects the 12 out of all of these followers And we see the gauntlet is kind of set where Jesus said, these are my guys and these guys are going to be with me and I'm gonna give them power to be sent out to cast out demons and to preach. And we see how that's contrasted with Jesus's own family and the scribes. And at the end of this section, the true followers of Jesus. What Mark is doing is he's taking like this sandwich eating moment and he's turning it into this story that he's telling. In order to understand what's going on here, you have to frame it by thinking about the disciples for a second and their commitment to Jesus. Their ability to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and to follow him against all odds. It seemed to work out for most of them, but as you know, some of the disciples would ultimately reject Jesus. And what Mark is doing is he's telling the story in a stylistic way where he's um, looking at certain events and placing them in the storyline to help us understand the real question that's being evoked. Will you follow Jesus? The same question that was true way back then with what do you do with the teaching and what do you do with the miracles and what do you do with the power and the authority that Jesus has is still true for us today. And I believe that question is still sitting out there. What do you do with Jesus? Will you follow or will you, like his family, say he's out of his mind? Will you, like the scribes and the Pharisees, say he doesn't really have that power? Will you, like others, turn and walk away? So we see how this plays out. And in the first few verses, we do meet Jesus' family that have heard what's going on in Capernaum. They've heard of all of these miracles and these teachings, and they begin to go after him because they think that he is out of his mind. When I was ruminating over that phrase, takes me back to my days as a child where um, our house had just burned down. Some of you have heard this story, so bear with me. Our house had just burned down um, and that's when things got weird for me. We were living in a double-wide trailer uh, which was out in the backyard of where our house used to stand and I had I came down with OCD like it was my job. I remember each night I would go to the bathroom and I'd you know brush my teeth, wash my hands, whatever, but then I'd have to line my feet up just perfect and I would jump out of the bathroom and I would hit all of the light switches at the exact same time and I'd have to land with my feet per- like in a perfect 10 just like this. So I'd be jumping out of the bathroom, hitting the lights. I don't know if anybody ever walked by to see this, but I'd be like, jumping out of the bathroom. Nope, that didn't work. I'd do that again. Jumping out of the bathroom. Nope, that wasn't the right one. It would take me like three or four times to jump out of the bathroom. Then I would go into my room. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, okay, I'm not gonna be back next week because this guy's crazy. It's okay. I've worked past most of this, but I would go to bed and as I would be sitting there, I would have a routine there too. I would touch the top of my head and my headboard, and go one, two, three. Then I'd check my alarm and then make sure it was set for the right time, check one, check two, check three, sit there, head to the side, wait to fall asleep. It's okay, I know, it's okay. If anything happened in between the time that I had my head like this, and this is, look, look how, look how comfortable I look. That's how you want to be. Like if I had an itch or something, I'd like scratch my my chest or whatever, and I'd be like, I gotta go to the bathroom, gotta wash my hands. So I'd go in there, wash my hands, jump out of the bathroom. No, that wasn't right. Jump out, nope, that wasn't right. Yep, that was good. Okay, and then you go in the bathroom. One, two, three, one, two, three. (laughs) I was out of my mind, I think you could say. Now, Jesus' story was not OCD, and it was not jumping out of bathrooms. That was a big confession there to you. Some of you, again, knew that story, but... Jesus, it was different. His parents believed that um, the things that were going on, he was, he was insane almost. This word can kind of um, bring that, that intonation here. This is R.T. France. He says, Jesus's people back home have heard reports of the rowdy scenes in Capernaum, and they decide that it is time to take Jesus in hand for his own sake and for the family's reputation on the assumption that he's flipped. He's lost it. Okay, he's out there casting out demons, and he's teaching, and all these people are following. We've got to bring him home. Now, this is strange to me because of the stories that surround the birth of Jesus and Mary, like treasuring all these things in her heart, and the the things that seem to have flipped, for them even, as they were watching the son, the brother, the the person that Jesus was becoming and just trying to figure out what in the world was going on. But they're going to get him because they believed that something had snapped. They didn't understand the mission. They didn't understand what he was doing, which makes sense because nobody really seemed to. Every time he talks to the disciples, he would say as clear as day, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And they wouldn't accept it. No one quite understood what it would look like for Jesus to bring the kingdom to earth, not even his own family. You could make make the point that at some times following Jesus might put you at odds with folks. Sometimes standing up for justice might put you at odds with people. Sometimes being someone who cares about reconciliation and forgiveness and grace will make you the odd person out. Sometimes the commitments that you have to holiness, the desire that you have to be in close communion with Christ will make you the object of disdain. For some of you, the confession that you're following Jesus was one of the hardest confessions that you've had to make to family and friends and people that you cared about because you knew what would come along with that. There is this this call that Jesus asks us to answer, but along with that is what the people around us are going to think. I teach at a private Christian school, and a lot of times in chapels, you know, we'll have everybody's eyes closed, and it'll be that moment where um, the chapel speaker will say something to the effect of, don't worry about what the person next to you thinks but it's not so different for us at times. We might not be in those circumstances where a decision has to be made right in the moment, but a lot of times we're consumed by what the people around us will think when they understand the commitments that we've made to follow Jesus. This is how the story is set up where Jesus' family is going to get him because they don't understand. They don't get it. The next people that show up are the scribes Um, And their accusation towards Jesus is he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. In a sense, what these folks are saying is any amount of power that Jesus has is given to him by Satan. This is not of God. He is working in collusion with demonic forces to do the things that he's doing. In a sense, what the scribes are really wanting to try to engage is who is this man? What do we do with him? How do we understand the works and the teachings and the things that we've seen that don't make sense? And for the scribes, they concluded, some of them concluded that it was only through the power that Jesus had been given through the devil that these things were taking place. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. This is the first um, real engagement with Jesus speaking in parables in Mark, where we actually hear what some of this looks like. And it doesn't look like what we have come to understand about parables. That'll be next week. There was a guy who was going out to sow seed in the land and some of them landed on rocky soil and some of them landed on good soil. It's like he, Jesus is telling stories, but here he's not really telling stories. He's speaking in parables, but it's not in the, the same sense that we, that we usually think. It's creating these images. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? That doesn't make sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If I'm doing things because Satan is giving me power to do them, yet I'm casting the demons out, that doesn't make sense. The house would be divided, the kingdom would fall. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end must come. Basically, the accusations that you're leveling against me right now, they don't even make sense. You guys are grasping at straws. You're so consumed and you're so dead set on this idea that I'm wrong and that you're right that you're not even allowing yourself to think logically about what's happening. In fact, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. And here we really see the meat, not only of this parable that Jesus is teaching, but the meat of this entire passage. We get so focused on the unpardonable sin and what that means and we get so focused on what's going on with Jesus' family that we miss the real important point here that Jesus is making. I'm stronger than Satan. The kingdom is here. This passage at its very core is a revelation of who Jesus is yet again, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm the guy that can go into the strong man's house and tie him up, and I can take whatever I want. I have authority over him. But before that, it seems like what Jesus is saying is, really? Really? Anybody watch Saturday Night Live and you see Seth Meyers and Amy Poehler, and they have this little bit where they're engaging with current politics and other things where they just go back and forth and say, really? Do you really think that I'm invested with power by Satan to cast out Satan's own people, really? Does that make sense about what's going on, really? I just kinda see Jesus like almost engaging these people and, and, and just completely leveling their arguments in a way that would've caused most thinking, rational people like to say, yeah, that what Jesus is saying really makes sense and what you guys are saying doesn't make sense. At all. But at the end of the day what Jesus is trying to communicate is I am the stronger one and this is how you know that the kingdom is happening because of what I'm doing, because of the things that I'm saying, because of the authority that I have, because of what's going on in your midst. You've seen this take place. And I kinda think that there's this underlying plea, not only with the scribes but with other people to say, hear me, get on board, follow me. It wasn't completely out of the realm of possibility for these scribes, at least some of the folks in the midst, to to follow Jesus. We see that with Nicodemus and various others that kind of come alongside of Jesus and, and see where he's coming from. But what's happening here is Jesus totally demolishes this, this argument and then goes one step farther into the territory that might um, cause some of our confusion. He says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. When I was growing up, Um, I also went to a private Christian school and when I was there, I remember as clear as day being a little kindergarten student and we would have these Bible lessons where the pictures were stored in these little cellophane um, packages and they'd put pictures on the chalkboard and you'd kind of just follow along and one of the pictures um, looked like a story of, of hell. And I remember chapels where that picture would be so vivid that you would just kind of tremble in fear. I also remember that every night I would say my prayers and every night I would ask Jesus into my heart because every day I would have done something dumb that meant that he was gone and that if I died at any moment I was going straight to hell with Satan and all of his minions. So every day I'm like asking Jesus back into my heart. And I usually uh, would, would think about if I was ever in a car accident and some words would come out of my mouth at some point that I'd have to very quickly say the sinner's prayer so that I would be back in God's good graces so that if I did in fact die that I would be okay and not condemned for all eternity. Does anybody, like, You've got a, a pastor here who's jumping out of the bathroom and you've got a pastor who's like fearful for his eternal salvation as a child, like over and over and over, not quite understanding what's going on. But I lived in this world of fear. I lived in this world of doubt. I lived in this world of God is just sitting above waiting to smite me. There's a really funny Far Side comic that doesn't exist anymore, but it's this guy walking down the street and there's a piano with a rope attached to it in, on one pane and on the other Pain. It's this old God type figure with a big red button that says "smite," and he's just waiting, like, to drop the piano on our heads. And that's kind of how I felt as a kid, where God is just wanting to destroy. So when we hear about these passages, like the unforgivable sin, I would start like, "Have I done it? Have I said whatever magical word I need to say? Like, have I have I committed the unforgivable sin?" the way that I treated my mom, is that the unforgivable sin? Am I condemned to hell for all of eternity? Like I just started like processing these things in my mind and I was really freaked out. But this doesn't seem to be what what Jesus is is talking about. It seems as though what he is calling into being is this complete lack of the Pharisees and the scribes' willingness to see the work of Jesus as something that God was doing. It was a complete lack misunderstanding of what's going on and an inability to allow themselves to see anything different. One scholar says, what is this unforgivable sin in verse 29? His critics, that's Jesus' critics, had painted themselves into a corner. Once you label what is in fact the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil, there's no way back. It's like holding a conspiracy theory. All the evidence you see will simply confirm your belief. You will be blind to the truth. It isn't that God gets specially angry with one sin in particular. It's not just one thing that you say. It's not just one thing that you do. It's a complete mindset that is focused on denouncing everything that is good and everything that is potentially from God. N.T. Wright continues, it's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent. These scribes in that moment would never have allowed themselves to see Jesus as anything but one who is filled by the power of the devil. They would not allow themselves to see anything but Jesus as the enemy. They would not allow themselves to see anything but the thing that they were trying so desperately to be true. A lot of times I think that we live our lives in, in this mindset, not necessarily with the things of God, but just in, in other ways, and at, and at times, the things that we've been through, the past hurts, the judgments, the things that we've experienced in church has, has caused us to walk away, perhaps for a season, perhaps for longer. I even think that what's happening here is different than that. This is a perpetual, ongoing denial of God. An ongoing, perpetual denial that Jesus has power to rescue you, to save you, to forgive you, to welcome you in. Joel Marcus says, to misconstrue this liberative, divine action as a deed of the devil is to demonstrate such a complete identification of the self with the forces of destruction, such a total opposition to the forces of life that no future possibility of rescue remains. C.S. Lewis has this story in The Great Divorce where it's basically a bus trip from hell to heaven. And the folks who are inhabiting hell get on the bus and they're riding around and when they pull up to the gates of heaven, it immediately becomes this moment of, I don't wanna be here, I hate that guy, I hate everything about him, I don't wanna be in his presence, take the bus and send it back home. I would rather be in hell than see anything that's going on here. That to me seems to be the picture that Jesus is painting of the unforgivable sin. It's an eternal sin because we are dead set in believing that God is not good and that God is not loving and that God is not just and that God is not present and that Jesus can offer us anything in the world of salvation and rescue. And some people are the folks in the bus that pull up and say, I don't want to be here. I can't handle it. As Christians, we pray for hearts to change. We pray for those people to see a glimpse of goodness. We pray for those people to see a glimpse of Jesus perhaps through us or through reading scripture or through the Holy Spirit just invading who they are and changing their mindset. But I think what Jesus is really talking about is the folks that will not allow themselves any part of it. I don't think that our job as Christians is any different. We pray, we minister, we serve, we love, and we spread the gospel. And we hope, at times we hope against hope, that the spirit will invade their lives and change their hearts. The image that C.S. Lewis paints as well, is one where God is not distorting people's minds and twisting their arms, but it's one where He's allowing people to have what they want to have. It's where God is seeing our hearts and saying, "Okay, you can have that." A lot of times we have this image of God as the one who just kind of manipulates His way into our life and um, changes our minds so that He can do whatever it is that He wants to do. But at least I think that what this image is is bringing. For us to see is that sometimes God allows us to, to have what we want, and sometimes what we want is not Him. As this story concludes, um, we see how Mark is contrasting the disciples versus Jesus' family and the scribes, and then we meet the followers at the end of the story and this, this is kind of the weirdest part of it to me when um, the family shows up and they go inside or somebody gives them word saying to Jesus, hey, your family's here. And Jesus gets all weird and says, who are my mother and my brothers? Just seems like one of the strangest responses that he can make. Like, no, dude, your mom, she's actually outside. Who is my mother? Now, no, like you know, the one that birthed you, she's, she's out back. And Jesus is kind of getting all existential here and he says to the people that are seated around him saying, these people are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. In particular, it's whoever does God's will. That's who Jesus in that moment is calling family. Because at this time, Jesus' family had almost written him off. He's crazy, he's not, uh, he's not right. We need to go save him and rescue him. And then he's saying, I, I got stuff to do. And these people that are sitting here, they get it. I think it leaves us, this story at least leaves us at a place where we should begin to reflect on our part in this story. Where do we fit? Are we sitting at the feet of Jesus, completely invested, totally following him, putting our, um, carrying our cross, denying ourselves, like we're, we're in it for the wind and we know that it's gonna hurt, we know that people are gonna ostracize us and we know that people are going to leave us and we know that people are gonna say what they say and we don't care because we are right there and we just want to follow Jesus with everything that we have. Or are we still like the family that kind of sees Jesus and says, that all that stuff looks really weird, it seems like he's totally crazy, he's jumping out of the bathroom, he's trying to get the lights, He's got some, some dsm four diagnoses going on here. I don't know what to do with that. Or are we even one step farther where we're the scribes and, and if we're on the bus, we say, turn it back around. I don't want anything to do with him or this grace that you talk about or this forgiveness that you've talked about or this salvation. It's a sham. I wanna go home. I think that as we sit here, in the midst of the busyness that is school scheduling and finals, in the midst of intense playoff games and the end of the seasons and as we sit here as folks who are longing for summer and those couple days where we get to just celebrate and then go back to work after that. Where in this story do we see ourselves? I hope that tonight, perhaps, it could be that moment where you put a flag in the ground and you say, tonight is my night, I've heard this gospel, I've heard this talk, I've heard about Christ, and I have not given everything to it. But tonight, I wanna to begin to walk that road. Perhaps for some of you, you're, you're jaded and you're, you're ticked and you're angry. I would invite you to begin to make steps where you see God as something other than what you've seen God as in the past, to see goodness and grace and mercy. Perhaps you've written yourself off a long time ago saying, I don't know if I've done the unpardonable sin where I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I've written off the works of God, but perhaps you would say like, I've done too much stuff to warrant anybody's love, let alone the king of all of the universe. I would implore you tonight to begin to see the grace that is offered you through Christ. To begin to accept that this is an offer for you. That this offer of grace and forgiveness and mercy is not limited to the religious elite. In the gospel, it's not for them, it's for the broken, and it's for the marginalized, and it's for the oppressed, and it's for the people that don't seem to have any right being in the family. He brings them in the family, and then he says, you are my mother, and my brother, my sister. I hope that tonight could be a moment where you begin to reflect and you say, tonight, I wanna pick up my cross, I wanna deny myself, and I wanna follow Jesus. And I want to begin living a life of justice and mercy and love and goodness that is modeled so beautifully through Jesus' death and resurrection.